Hey, welcome back to Coffee with JP. The news cycle is cray-cray, folks, and the AI policy debate has gotten really, really interesting. Nespa? Lots of conflict, lots of controversy, but I'm going to be real here for a second. Um, I had a huge health crisis over Thanksgiving that really threw me for a loop. I'm doing well, but the impacts make me a little more emotional, a little more reactive, and I'm trying to stay out of things that drive me crazy like right now. And a lot of this stuff that's been going on really blows my mind. I'm sure it blows your mind too. No worries. I'm going to return to that discussion. I've gotten a lot of feedback that people like it. And we will be talking about AI policy a lot in the future. But for right now, in the interest of my health, the end of the year, the approaching holidays, and keeping it mixed up all around around here, I want to go micro for a little bit and talk field-specific about UX research. Even though I've more often been a digital transformation consultant lately, I will always be involved in human-computer interaction, human factors, UX research, uh, and software ethnography conversations, uh, feeling my age, and uh, I'm always uh, saying, quoting uh, some fantasy literature and saying people don't quote that dark magic to me, which I was there when it was written. I really was there when everything went from uh, analog to digital, and so I've seen the whole, all the fields evolve as both an academic in a field related to anthropology and uh, a technophile in person working in software development. Uh, my strongest vertical skill set is always going to be research writing and deep data software architecture, as in complex system design, not just interface. And I still love it. I still feel at home around people who do that work. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, okay? So here's what I want to talk about for my friends in this game and for anybody else just generally interested in the field. Synthetic users. Remember that. This might go off a road for a second, but I will come back to that. The idea of the synthetic user that ChatGPT suggests we can actually now do. So this weekend, I've been delving deep into that conversation through um, many brilliant people on uh, in UX research, my colleagues and the ones that I know, the ones that I sort of follow. Ben Dressler had a really good feed that sort of inspired this. Thanks. Hat tip to you if you ever hear this. Um, but I saw a discussion about synthetic users in their field. And when I've been acting as an IC or in the past four or five years or advising teams setting up UX practices where I use the do one, you know, watch me do one, I watch you do one, teach one mode of teaching, you can see teams validating and testing design choices that frankly seem really redundant and a waste. Uh, these are things that have been tested repeatedly since the dawn of user testing. It made me wonder why can't we create more centralized repositories? Back in 2019, I posed this to uh, a, a data scientist buddy of mine. It was a really compelling idea. Like if we could centralize our user testing repositories, we could aggregate these decisions made from user testing, allowing us to draw generalized conclusions and avoid wasting time on what we can already make educated guesses about. And I'm not talking about swags here, scientific wild ass guesses, which are my favorite kind of guesses to make, by the way. But I'm talking about actually informed scientific ones, like there's an 80% chance this will work and so on. So the idea is to reduce the need for testing things we already know work. And this idea existed for me prior to to um, uh, the ChatGPT explosion. Um, and if if you're awake and you're aware and you're conscious and you're working in what the majority of enterprise software design 
programs are like, you know what I'm talking about. There's just things that, that don't have to be tested. And, um, and so if, imagine if all the testing data went into our repository, just in your instance, in your company, in your enterprise, and over the years it accumulates, uh, you start to be able to query that database and make scientific guesses on what might work in particular user flow patterns and things like that. Every new UX, UX researcher, when they come into an enterprise position, starts over from scratch, which is incredibly frustrating, especially for someone like me who loves numbers, even though I'm primarily a qualitative researcher. We're wasting so much data by not creating more comprehensive and queryable databases. So in 2019, and look, I'm not talking about Dovetail or any of those other solutions out there. That's a whole other conversation I'll save for another time if you want to have it. But I'm talking about an actual queryable database. So in 2019, uh, like I said, when I was talking to my data scientist buddy and we were working in the federal space and we had a little uh, spare time after a meeting was canceled, we started kicking it around. And I toyed with him about the idea of creating a database that could first quantify even qualitative data through various hashtagging and meta-hashtagging processes. And I'm not talking about Dovetail. Again, I'm talking about something else, something that a lot of people have been thinking about, a queryable qualitative database. And this qualitative database problem is a problem, folks, that we've been grappling with for a long time. I delved into it in higher ed. And then I thought, couldn't we try to solve it with UX research as a use case? This could help us make accurate predictions about how people might react, both attitudinally and behaviorally, to certain digital experiences. Uh, because I studied the cognitive linguistic theories that animate LLMs and knew that natural language programming was coming, I thought to myself at that time, we should be ready for that by beginning to store qualitative data as effectively as we know how to with existing technology. We were still using Boolean logic, maybe some SQL, a bit of Python, but not much in the way of AI or machine learning, nothing like what GPT technology currently offers. However, I knew that the only thing really holding back our ability to effectively query a qualitative database at that time was an advanced natural language programming or NLP. Don't confuse that with neuro-linguistic programming, totally different. I'm talking about natural language programming. So I knew it was coming, but frankly, in 2019, I was cynical as F. I had known about NLP and the limitations of computational theory and Boolean logic since 2003 and saw promising inklings that NLP was right around the corner, but when it never landed in the whole AI world, seemed focused on extracting information from Im images instead, well, I stopped holding my breath, capiche? It's funny to me that now we're looking at being able to do this so quickly with ChatGPT. Uh, until recently, I heard a prominent figure in our field uh, considered one of the founding fathers, by the way, make a high-profile post about ChatGPT being wrong in UX applications something like 75% of the time or something. I laughed out loud because I don't know what they were using precisely, but if they were using just a, a ChatGPT, uh, this particular person is responsible for much of the content governing our rules and processes in UX. So if an untrained, uncustomized ChatGPT produces poor results, it's more a reflection of the quality of the UX content on the internet right now than the technology's capability in UX-related tasks. And assuming the low-paid team in Kenya is still suffering the after-effects of that inhumane work weighted this man's content and information appropriately and heaviest when it was harvested, who knows how well that was done? I mean, I don't know. Do you? 
and what algorithms were given to easily generate the weighting. But in terms of share penetrance and quality of content, it is safe to assume that if an untrained, uncustomized model is wrong, it's a reflection of the quality of the data on the internet and not the ability of NLP animated GPT technology to synthesize it, express it accurately. The raw GPT based on the web isn't the issue. It's how we customize and train it. And that's already the next big explosion that's already happening. Having said that, back to the concept of synthetic users, I have a pretty controversial position that would make me unpopular amongst my compadres in the field of software development and UX research as it's typically practiced. Uh, user research. My apologies in advance, but when it comes to Web 2.0, at least a lot of what we do is going to become obsolete. And it should. But that's good news because of what emerges from the ashes. Web 3.0 is a virgin territory, right, for UX research and design. It will be actual generative research and design setting the standard for others to follow in the future. Just. Take that in for a second. Everything that we talk about, whether or not synthesizers, synthetic users are accurate or not, were based on the idea of Web 2.0 interfaces. So whether you're pro-synthetic, anti-synthetic, or somewhere in the middle, you're talking about a technology that's starting to recede into the ether as a new one encroaches. And now also think to yourself, all the practices that we do in UX emerged from a time when Web 2.0 interaction was brand new, all right? And I'm just going to let that hang in the air there. But now, if you're a senior in the field, this is a great point to start focusing on Web 3.0. Even if you can't in your current role do it professionally, you could start exploring it in a community like we do at Singular XQ or with friends or even host discussions at your workplace. I can help you host discussions if you want, if you hit me up. When I think of Web 3.0, I think of automation, immersive design, screenless technology, and blockchain. Web 3.0 is very complicated in, when you're talking about information, chief information officers, the way they think about Web 3.0 is a little bit different than the way software developers and designers might think it. Gamers think of Web 3.0 in a particular way. But when I think of it, that's what I'm thinking about. It's automation, immersive design, screenless technology, and blockchain all coming together. Um, it has lots of implications for industrial manufacturing as well. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about general um, run-of-the-mill human user experiences on the internet, digital experiences. Even though blockchain and automation are more back-end issues and UX is primary front-end focused, the idea has always been that the tech impacts the experience. Okay? The tech impacts the experience. So as Web 2.0 became more mature, designers had less and less, and things became more rote, automated, and just sort of put into a routine. Designers had less and less necessity of understanding how technology works, how engineering works, et cetera, et cetera. But when it emerged, you could not separate the tech from the experience because the tech dictated how the experience would be um, iterated and what jobs would be done on that interface. So. Now that we understand that the tech impacts the experience just as much as the interface that we place on top of it does, 
we got to think about all the different things that are coming together right now. Putting the front end of an old technology on the back end of a new one is the most foolish thing people can do. They're going to do it here all over the place. But let me give you the best example. The example I always give is when web marketing became a thing, we took our most sacred marketing artifact, the direct mailing flyer, and turned it into a PDF email to people, not realizing that the old content required a radical transformation. Digital media isn't passive like print. It's a behavioral system. Eventually, we're gonna, we learned that it was interactive and then you start getting apps and you start getting notifications and you start getting Google ads and everything else. And, and then the Mar, you know, MarTech just exploded and went the direction that it was supposed to go. And we call this the skeuomorphic fallacy, which is the idea that sometimes we use skeuomorphism in design intentionally and with good effect, but there's a skeuomorphic fallacy, at least that's what I call it. Um, the thing I call the skeuomorphic fallacy is when we try to make the work of the old technology fit into the work of the new technology, just because we're not exactly sure what that work is going to look like yet. Uh, so. The direct mailing flyer became a scanned PDF that went into an email as a, an attachment and eventually as an HTML um, template. So then we realized that the tech direct mailing flyer actually was not the only thing we could do. Now, here's another interesting point from this example. The direct mailing flyer still exists. It probably always will in some fashion. Uh, these replacement technologies don't generally replace everything. We still have typewriters, for example. We still have, it's just, it reduces the economy and demand and develops a new, smaller, more modest economy out of those old technologies. We still have landline phones. We still have, uh, when, when, when calculators came out, we didn't have to get rid of mathematicians, right? I mean, there's just so many different ways to think about that. But going back to this, um, this is my official position on synthetic users and whether or not they will replace the need for traditional user testing and research. I'm going to break it down rationally. I'll even volunteer where my argument is weak. Okay. So, all right. I haven't crunched actual numbers here. Okay. I'm just throwing a scientific wild ass guess, the swag hypothesis out there. And when I'm in doubt, I always go to Pareto, right? So I'm thinking about what? 80% of our Web 2.0 interactions, pretty much by the book. It's a well-trodden path. And when you think about it, these millions of interactions we've got data on, they're not just numbers, they're a goldmine of information, a solid base for making some pretty sound decisions. This is exactly why design libraries are our go-to nowadays. Remember the early days of Web 2.0, all those techniques and approaches we developed back then? Well, they're still kicking and they don't need to be questioned at every turn. So if we bring in AI, and I'm talking about the customized trained models, not just your run-of-the-mill chatbot, we're pretty much set up for most of what we do. Now, people, I realize, sometimes you have to dress up testing to push around really bad design skills or really poor business prescriptions for design solutions. But assuming the general maturity and competence of the team, big assumption in my opinion, but... I stand by this. 80% of our Web 2.0 interactions don't need to be tested anymore. But here's the kicker. 
generative research, the whole new world of Web 3.0, and even some slightly more innovative 2.0 experiences, that's a whole different ballgame. We're back to square one there, folks. We're even back to square one there with Web 2.0 AI interactions. And you know what? That's not bad news at all. That's good news. Think about it. How many of you are tired of just rubber stamping design decisions that were made way before you got to them? Or testing things that have been tested to death death just because they're on the to-do list? That's not innovation. That's busy work. Now let's get really real for a second. This whole AI-generated user thing is not without its flaws. For starters, we're leaning really heavily on quantitative data here. Numbers are great and everything. I love them, but they don't tell us the whole story. They're a checkpoint. They're a single data point. What about the why behind the what? The emotions, the motivations, the human experience. AI is not quite there yet and picking up on those subtleties, but that's just around the corner, you know? I'd love to talk about the qualitative database solutions, and I think we'll come next. But suffice to say, it's not there yet. I agree. But it's coming, folks. And then there's the assumption that most web interactions are cut from the same cloth. And I know that's a weakness in my argument about the 80%, but we know that that's not always the case, right? Every website, every app has their own flaw, flavor, their own quirks. Will AI be able to get all of that? And let's not forget about the data we're feeding these AI models. There's always the risk of bias, missing out of the unique needs. If the data is not diverse enough, plus with all this new stuff coming up in Web 3.0, that's when we're going to need a serious upgrade to keep up. That data isn't there yet, people, to aggregate. Someone has to create it through exploration, experimentation, and testing. And the, will the AI be able to teach it to itself? Maybe. But you're going to need human checkpoints. And guess who should be doing that human checkpointing? You, the senior UX researcher, the senior UX designer, you with all the skills and the force who could influence the business and the decisions that come next. That's your mission right now. Get on that generative Web 3.0 train. We need you. I know, I know it, it's not exactly a popular stance right now. I've been on the firing end of being pro-democratization prior to GPT so that we could free seniors up to do this more innovative work with their seasoned approach. But I get the fear of losing jobs and whatnot. I really do. I've, I've had a really privileged life having been able to be a Swiss army knife and pick up lots of different kinds of work as a solo consultant. And I had a really, really um, long life in academia. So I never really got siloed into a role. That isn't because I'm smarter and better than people who have had more traditional linear careers or didn't take uh, a lot of academic training. It just means that um, I had the luck of my circumstances and frankly, my own quirks of personality, curiosity, and interest. Uh, but I've also frequently been in a position to have to take jobs. I've had to take uh, just as a matter of keeping all the bills paid. So trust me, I get it. it it's nerve wracking when the things we do every day are suddenly being so radically questioned and seem to be going away. But no one anywhere is going to be creating years-long careers in any one vertical skill set anymore. Or rather, at least in tech, very, very few are. So now, how do you 
observe, reorient, decide, and act within your strengths? And how can you make the impact on the future that we need you to make? Have a great week and all. Thanks for having coffee with me. I'm JP.